0: The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlawry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket presales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hi, uh, this is Glenn Lowry. You've tuned into The Glenn Show. I'm with Daniel Desner, old friend Daniel. He teaches international studies at the University of Washington's Henry Jackson School of International Studies. I'm at Brown University and at the Manhattan Institute where I'm the John Paulson Sr. Fellow Manhattan Institute Sponsors, The Glenn Show. Daniel and I have had many conversations at The Glenn Show. Welcome back, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me, Glenn. You'll be pleased to know Daniel helped me out. We had a series of conversations which I reflected autobiographically and it actually fed into a project which has reached the point where the publisher has a manuscript in. Here. Oh, Mazeltov! Oh my
1: God, congratulations. Now you, you get to look back at the life and make sense of it. Narrativize your
0: life. <laughs> <laughs> I can't talk about it because uh, Norton said, uh, let's wait until the publicity hits. Uh, oh, for so. sure. But uh, it's, it's a good feeling and I appreciate it. I wanna thank you uh, publicly for helping out because it did make a difference actually.
1: Oh that's uh, that's great to hear as an intellectual historian I'm always very interested
0: in how people
1: self conceive and stuff like that so I'm glad to hear it helped.
0: We talked about the Jewishness of the economics department at MIT back in the day when I was a student there in the 70s and I heard from a number of my friends you know former teachers and students who happened to be Jewish and were 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 pleased at that remembrance of the department in those in those years. So Okay, so um, we're here. At the Glenn Show. Daniel is an international studies expert. He's a historian, uh, and uh, we're going to be talking about some. We're talking about the end of history, and you don't mean it the way that Francis Fukuyama meant it. <laughs> Uh, No, no, I don't. But I I actually have a piece coming
1: out about Fukuyama. So I'm deep in Fukuyama land in my head right now. And I I actually think he was correct. And we could talk about that if you want to talk about the other end of history, too. But he was right, I think, maybe for the the wrong reasons, but he was right. (laughs) Oh,
0: uh, all right. Well, I I definitely want to hear about that. Uh, uh, But you're also talking about the end of history as an academic profession. Yes. So, I mean, I think that sets the parameters for our conversation. It's two parts. One of them is talking about the developments of uh, the gig uh, professoriate in uh, the academy and uh, the transformations that are going on there and how it affects the humanities. And then the other is about the American empire and the what what comes after.
1: Yep. Yep, precisely. Yeah.
0: So, so what you're alarmed you're you're uh apocalyptic frankly uh, uh, one and- person's
1: apocalypticism <laughs> is another's realism uh, same with pessimism <laughs> um yeah i i I'm pretty um apocalyptic right now about the state of the historical profession,
0: why so? Uh,
1: well, something has happened in, in the last generation or so, and, and it's interesting because I think this feeds into arguments that that are are more popular than the one I made in the Times about, you know, the wokeification of the university or the DEIification of the university. Um, but essentially, what's happened since roughly the 1970s or so, it differs according to institution, but um, American universities have started to replace, particularly but not only in the humanities full-time tenure track positions with so-called gig workers, uh, non-tenure track. Now now there's different types of non-tenure track jobs. Um, Glenn, you're very familiar, but for people who might not be, there's something called a lectureship, which is basically a contract position usually protected by, you know, you you have a one-year contract or a three or a five-year contract. Sometimes those positions come with benefits and um, oftentimes they actually do come with benefits, 401ks, healthcare. Um, But beyond that, there's really been um, an explosion in in so called adjunct professorships or gig workers. Uh, And these are people who um, are paid effectively per class and and the rates are incredibly low. Data on this is semi-difficult to find, but from what I remember, I don't have the um, numbers right in front of me right now, but roughly uh, the average or median um, uh, cost per course is around $3,000-ish. So if you're teaching a full-time semester, you get three thousand dollars, which is as anyone. It who's was thirty
0: five hundred t- in in your piece, if I if I recall correctly.
1: Yeah, it, it differs according to institution. So yes, yeah, so thirty five hundred. And some some are as low as twenty nine hundred. Some are as high as f- like seven thousand. It really does depend on um the uh the institution. But so 3- thirty five hundred, sure that that's the median. So as this can tell, the the important takeaway, and all the numbers are in the piece and cited. Um is that it's very difficult to make a living as an adjunct professor in the contemporary US University to I say nothing it. yeah yeah to say nothing of the fact that your class could be canceled two days before because there's not enrollment or you could have two days to prep for a class uh, prep time of course as you know is not included in, in time that you are actually paid for so in some ways it's pretty interesting to me is that the US university system foreshadowed the gig economy writ large that has really defined the American political economy since the explosion of the internet in in the 2000s with Uber drivers and food delivery workers and things of that nature.
0: Okay, let me comment because as an economist, I'm thinking, I'm not trying to pull rank or anything like that. I'm just thinking like an economist is going to think. Prices fluctuate, uh, supply and demand, uh, and uh, the gigification is, it's a kind of uh, disintegration. You know, instead of having an entity that's a firm, you, you have these kind of contracting things with a lot of different independent suppliers. And, you know, uh, it might be the the cheapest and most efficient way of delivering the product. What's the product? Uh, So, I I mean, I I don't know why. There's a wage and it's low. It happens to be the wage of a history professor. Why should I care? I mean, with respect, I don't mean to be. Sh- sure, you know, on no, feeling, sh- but I'm, I'm saying some prices are low, some prices are high. They're getting what what they're supplying. I mean, what what what's the you know? Sh- wow. Why- <laughs> No,
1: no, I totally get your question, Uh, and it's 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 oftentimes the question that people ask, and so uh, it depends if you care about education or not, right? So presumably, let's assume that we both care about education and we want people to get "quote unquote" good educations. Now we could talk about what that means, but if if you want people to actually learn things, it turns out that you need full paid workers to be able to concentrate on students in a classroom. Let Let's not even talk about the research side, which most Americans don't care about.
0: Excuse me for interrupting. You're making the claim then that the The quality of the service that's being delivered by the contract workers who are being paid such a pittance
1: is is less than it
0: would be or should be or could be.
1: Yeah, I I would uh, point people to the book, The Gig Academy. Um, which goes through this in, in detail. But study after study shows that, that things like contact hours are reduced. Seem, things like professor investment in students are reduced. Uh, things like student success, particularly amongst low-income students, are, are significantly reduced. So so that's just a pure fact. When when you pay adjuncts to work this way, the quality of education decreases. And this has been reproduced in, in numerous studies. Um, so that's the teaching side of the equation. People People are just taught less and they're taught worse. Um, Now, this gets almost into philosophical questions about what is the purpose of college. Uh, I mean, I think in the American system, the purpose of college is essentially to to be a signaling mechanism to getting a job. Um, What what the U.S. university system has done is it's it's made sure that employers don't have to train uh, as much as they might otherwise. It serves as a feeding ground to to future employment. And and in some sense, that's how the university system in this country justified itself historically. You know, in the 40s and the 50s in the '60s, when the American university system that you and I know was really getting going, one of the ways that that it was justified to to invest public monies in was the Cold War, which I think was the most important one. But also, people claimed like we're preparing people for the modern workforce of tomorrow. So universities effectively serve that function. Um, so there are multiple problems. Thinking like an economist, then is it is it, it, it you know if that is what it does, it's not doing it well because it's not actually teaching people. It becomes sort of these degree mills, these degree farms and other phenomena like great inflation is related to this. So I, I think just flat out quality of education goes down. Now, if you don't give a shit about education, uh, then, then that's well, not really no, a problem. Not you, the one.
0: I mean, education in some, you know, theoretically, yeah. I mean, what I see is a product that's being consumed. Uh, is education and- a product?
1: That's a philosophical question
0: well the the four year experience of the youngster, I mean, if I were going to send them to summer camp, that would be a product. They would go off, they'd be gone for six weeks or whatever. Right. Uh, if they were going to spend some time abroad and tour Europe, that would be a product or Israel or, or whatever. and this rite of passage yeah you know it looks to me like it's a really complex cultural thing it is yeah. that it's not just economic, it's not not just uh you know power dynamic uh that it that it's also we we have developed or cultivated this idea uh about the the college degree i mean why does the the census collects data by the college degree i was just teaching this class this morning and the question is why do incomes differ between groups and you know i'm saying we have these measures you know and the college degree is one of those measures you know uh and it's a credential as you uh as you say and a signal i mean you don't want to do away with signaling it's probably not the most efficient signal. I think it's an interesting, hard problem to think about the production of information in the marketplace. It's, you know, But we would want something to serve the function of screening and signaling for various allocation of uh, human resource purposes. So, you know, and then there are these fly-by-night or these uh, private colleges that spring up and uh, so on credentialization. And so I, I see it as a, a really sort of, tableau of of a lot of different things going on at one time, but this, this four year, you know, residential, you know, you go away and you have the, the experience, uh, that's a pretty special thing, no?
1: Um, sure. I I mean, the way that I like to think about it is that the American university combines the worst aspects of capitalism with the worst aspects of feudalism. And so it's a very complex institution whose literal model is pre-modern, uh, you know, you could trace it back to the University of Heidelberg and earlier than that to these monks' colleges where people were literally cloistered to sit and study things. And then what happened over the course of modernity is this thing which existed in a capitalistic society um, – takes on some of these capitalistic features, you know, and you know, the famous quote, Harvard is a uh, hedge fund with a college attached, right? And you you get what some might call a perversion of the original purpose of the university or at the very least a transformation if you don't want to put a negative valence on it. So I totally agree. It's a, it's a very strange situation, particularly in the, since the, the rise of things like student loan debt, and the marketing of college as, I think you're correct, a consumer experience, which we experience in the classroom, I would be curious to know. I, my guess is that people grubbing for grades has exponentially increased since you first started teaching in the 1970s. Maybe I'm wrong, oh, it's but that's horrible. my guess. It's yeah.
0: horrible. Right. That, that's a transformation, no, no, right? Yeah. You're right. But I can't help but say this, Daniel. I just remember when I went to the university. I remember when I, you know, kid on the South Side of Chicago, I was going to a community college. I got a scholarship to Northwestern and I got to the university. I remember reading European philosophy, German literature. I remember studying mathematics and getting exposed to Karl Marx and uh, Friedrich von Hayek and stuff. I mean, it was really pretty remarkable. It was pretty, it was pretty special. Oh, it's great. I mean, the uh, university so, and its ideals so, are amazing. So, I'm sorry. University. the 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 university
1: could be an amazing institution. I I totally agree with that.
0: Well, it was an amazing institution for me and my my experience, and I'm sure that that's happening for kids today. I mean, yeah, uh, I know it's happening in my own you know relationships with students and things like that. So. I think it differs
1: also according to type of institution. I think the students at Brown are going to be different than the students at the University of Washington. So for example, if you ask a class at Brown, why did you go to college? They might say things like learn to learn about history or whatnot, but why I I do this every for every single one of my classes. Why do you go to college? And every single time, at least 80% of the class responds to get a job. So it also depends about where you are in the income, in the class stratum really, and what the purpose of college is for you. Because if you go to Harvard and get a history degree, Degree, you could still get that job at Goldman Sachs. If you go to the University of Missouri and you get a history degree, you can't. And that has to do with the stratification of college and the fact that, you know, basically they've become oligarchical institutions reproducing the U.S. elite, in my opinion. And someone recently on your podcast also had that same argument and had the data to back it up. So I'm confident in that one.
0: Okay, Daniel, American ruling class being reproduced by, reminds me of the Bulls and Gintis argument in schooling. Schooling in capitalist America, that old book from a long time ago, but they were they were talking I thought about primary and secondary education mostly uh but okay so i should I should somehow respond to that uh, what about research w- in what sense I mean the production of knowledge. I mean, specialization. Uh, So you're a historian. I'm an economist. There are, you know, physicists and philosophers and, you know, books are being produced. Do we dare to consider that there might be some value in the books that are being produced Um, and uh, that sort of thing? Uh, Or am I being an elitist? Is it that? I, I'm sure you're doing research at the University of Washington, but uh, the, the bulk of the university world doesn't actually, that tenure is, is not really a, a measure of uh, significant contribution to knowledge and that these, uh, these uh, guilds of uh, scholars who are practitioners of this craft, of this art, as well as this science of investigation Don't, you know, don't really add up to that much. I mean, are you cynical all the way down, you know, uh, about the university? No, I mean,
1: in, in this country, what we have done is combine research with teaching in a particular institution uh, called the university. As you know, in Europe, that's not necessarily the case. You, you could pursue a career in humanistic research outside the confines of the university. It's not not really true here, even though some think tanks are kind of skirt that line. But no, I think research is absolutely essential and absolutely important. And what actually um, inspired me, the muse that called me to write this piece, was the fact that in our public discourse, particularly since the election of Donald Trump, um, particularly in elite discourse in, in places that you and I write for and read, like the Atlantic, the New Republic, the nation, what have you, is that people have been constantly arguing over history, particularly the 1619 Project and then the 1776 Project and then, you know, traces of fascism in American history, the history of American genocide and expansion, what have you. But what was curious to me is that why at this time when people are seem to be talking about history more than they have in my lifetime, at least, there's been a decline of the the, professor, uh, the professoriate. And what I wanted to do in this piece was just highlight this irony and make the claim that if we care about things like the 69 project, 1619 project, whether we agree or disagree with it, I think if you are arguing about it, you care about the interpretation of history, that this country is actually destroying the next generation of historians to the degree where there actually won't be a next generation of historians. I, uh, something like one fourth of people who graduated with a PhD in 2017, again the exact the exact statistics are in the the piece, don't have uh, have gotten jobs as tenure track history professors. So if you're not tenure track, you're not given the resources to do things like go to archives, learn languages, travel the country, and ultimately write a manuscript. So we're going to have just a flat out decrease and decline in historical knowledge as people seem to be more interested in our popular discourse with discussing history. And I see, I think research is absolutely. Absolutely essential to the human spirit, you know, for lack of a better phrase, like what we do is research to increase human knowledge as a good in and of itself, and that's precisely what we're getting rid of as a society,
0: okay, now, what about uh the history being captive to the presentism, political agendas, and being you know uh, shaken? From its its moorings and uh, a concern with the past and you know historic historiography and all of that kind of stuff. The, you mentioned that in the piece, uh, the president of the American Historical Society, or
1: yeah, is, I could give okay. a brief précis of what happened. So so J- yeah. James H. H. Sweet, who's a, a historian of Africa at the University of Wisconsin Madison, also the president of the American Historical Association, um, in the so past, sweet. uh, in in the past few months, released like you know his monthly. <clears throat> His monthly column about the purpose and state of the historical profession, arguing about how he's worried sometimes that presentist concern distorts a scholarship. Um, and he was writing about, in particular, I believe he visited Ghana. And there were people who were African-American who were there, who were um, viewing it as an African-American site. And um, Sweet was making the comment that very few people who actually left this particular site in Africa went to what is the present day United States. And he was basically posing philosophical questions about what what this means, you know, like, is is that a problem? Uh, And then people in the historical profession got very angry. it is a problem,
0: isn't it? Excuse me for interrupting.
1: It is a problem, isn't it? Um. We would have to talk about it, a problem in what sense, right? Like, well, if, I mean, is, if, if I it, understand the. So, so there's like the von Rankean perspective of history, which is like, we have to see how it really was. But there's also more of a metaphysical approach to that, even if literally. This site didn't send people literally to the United States. There's still a meaningful interaction that people could have in the past, even if they're using it in a quote unquote incorrect way. It's not a simple question of yes or no, in, in my opinion, because sites gain prominence for particular contextual reasons that he didn't go into in the piece. You know, maybe it's easy to get to and the, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there, it's actually no, not I as see simple. That it's a-
0: yeah. It's a meta it's it's a very philosophical kind of thing. Does the historian have to be absolutely literal in every degree Precisely. in order to, you know, to make meaning so I, of the I, past. I see the point yeah. i see the point i i i, I withdraw my my comment <laughs> but, but no
1: people did get really mad and i i think people were mad mostly because this is what the president of the american historical association is focusing on as the discipline collapses um i wrote a piece for the chronicle of higher education i believe in 2019 which effectively said the aha and the MLA and other institutions need to really serve as unions, right? Even though they're not technically organized under whatever nonprofit law to be unions, they need to reorganize themselves as such. Um, and the piece made a big splash, and the AHA responded and were like, "We're not a union." So I think over the past three to five years, <laughs> it was—you could check it out, Glenn. It was a little wild, but uh, in the past three to five years, there's there's been an enormous loss of faith in the governing institutions of which this of which this recent contract It was not a total reflection by any stretch people did have genuine um problems with the column but i think was was a reflection of this larger structural feature which is that the guardians of the profession haven't been doing anything like the ama like the aba like other organizations that actually have credentialing mechanisms you know everyone could be a historian in the united states you just say i'm a historian i'm an amateur historian could you be an amateur lawyer no so that i think relates to larger guild problems
0: Okay, I was going to make a comment, but I, I see you're uh, a man of the people, a man of the of the working class. <laughs> In this case, the the working class producing uh, the academic uh, ex- historical uh, reality for these students. And but, I, but the question I was going to ask is the relationship between the uh, the sort of union focused, uh, you know, we don't want a gig economy here. Uh, look at the conditions under which people are laboring. Uh, narrative, which is what you've been offering on the one hand, and the intellectual hierarchy of a of an academic discipline, where you're going to have gradations and and judgments about uh, the excellence and the quality and the significance of the work. So somebody's going to be professor at the elite place. Somebody's going to get the prize for the book of the year that was the most, you know. And and these rankings of assessment or judgment are. I know that's stratified. I know that's the very, very few. I know most people are not going to be touched by that. The journal is not accepting anything. The journal is presumably rejecting more articles than it's printing, things of this kind. People are striving to get tenure. That is a measure of, of, of the extent to which they, they meet some kind of standard. So, they're, they're, you know, for example, we should have a union. Well, I can understand why the guy who's teaching for 3,500 bucks a, a shot wants a union. Uh, Let's just say my position is a little bit more comfortable than that. (laughs) Okay, I think I've made my point.
1: No, of course. (laughs) And what's interesting is that I think the the, the reason that this has gotten bigger in the last two years since COVID is that even the Ivy League grads aren't getting jobs. So David Bell, the son of the great thinker Daniel Bell, had a post where of the seven people, and he's at Princeton, you know, top of the top, was at Hopkins, was at Princeton. Good guy, great scholar. Great He's guy, a too. He's a China I don't know. guy, isn't he? Uh, French Revolution. He's an 18th oh, okay. century um, Franco, uh, Francoist. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Not Francoist. I forget what they call it. I got uh, him
0: confused with somebody else. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, yes. so
1: Daniel Bell's son, you know, academic royalty. So he had, um, I think he said something like seven students and like the majority of them haven't gotten jobs. Right. So now that argument, which a lot of people had been making in the last 10, 15 years, has begun to wither away because even the so called meritocrats aren't getting jobs. I would also say history is different from economics or physics or, or or the social and natural sciences, it's not really a discipline where you have an insight that's just going to propel the field, that now we understand the French Revolution in a new way. It just isn't like that. It's a, war, a more workmanlike discipline. You know, like Eric Hobsbawm, what is he known? He's known for four books. So he's known for 2,000 pages, right? He's, he's not known for the single pithy insight that he had. So history is actually interesting because the meritocracy can't really function in the same way that it does in other fields. Or you could say like Albert Hirschman, he's just better. He had that insight that other people just didn't have. Kenneth Arrow just had that, you know, no one in history has that. You know, it's not like now I understand the Holocaust in a way that no one was able to. So it's actually interesting because those sorts of meritocratic arguments don't really they can't really function just in the way the discipline is structured, which is based on years of digging through tens of thousands of documents and slowly producing a narrative and slowly producing a manuscript. It's not a field based on insight in the same way. Do, 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 uh, do you see what I'm saying? That makes I it think different.
0: I do. You're in the narrative construction business. Uh, it's an art, not a science, something like that. You say it's workmanlike because it's almost like journalism. It's a higher level of journalism. But somebody's got to chronicle what the 20th century meant. That's the business you're in. Um, but it, it doesn't lend itself easily to this kind of uh, ordinal assessment that allows you to identify, I don't know, breakthroughs or whatever. Uh, I, I, so it's an interesting There's observation. a Pulitzer
1: Prize, not a Nobel Prize in history, right? That That says everything right there.
0: Right. So what, what are your feelings about black history, about about ethnic uh, history as a dis- subdiscipline of the of the historical thing? Are there any questions there or interesting, you know, Well, here's uh, what's actually it's
1: Here's what's actually interesting. Uh, the historian, Matt Karp, also at Princeton, a lot of, a lot of Princeton today, uh, actually crunched the numbers. And the only field um, in American history that has grown is actually African-American history. So <laughs> it, this is really a Rorschach test, right? Because if you're on the right, you're like, oh my God, like, like, I can't believe it. All this stuff is being focused on African-American history. And if you're on the left, you're like, well, at least there's some history jobs. You know, the only see, reason that has been protecting the field at all is because people feel compelled to respond to the George Floyd protests. People people feel compelled to respond to Black Lives Matter. So that's an interesting fact that's really Rorschach test like. Because without them, it's not like there would have been other jobs in, in diplomatic history. It's just there would have been no jobs. Um, so so that's what's actually um, happening. But I mean, I think like like most historians of, of my generation, uh, those those fields are absolutely essential to the study of of, of history. The you know, great historians like Matt and Manning Mar- Maribel and other people Manning. Maribel was at Columbia when I was there, have done much to improve our understanding of the um, American experience by by showing how African-American history is incorporated into it. It's absolutely essential, and you can't have an American history without it, in in my opinion, at least.
0: What do you make of the controversy over the uh, AP course uh, in African-American studies? I guess it's studies, not history. You know what I'm talking about? In, in Florida? Florida. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Two things. Why the hell does the college board have any control over anything to do with American education in this country? I hope people <laughs> use this as a, as a moment to investigate that. And two, um, <laughs> I, think, I think most of, uh, I mean, most of this, that sort of thing just reeks like culture war nonsense to me, um, even if it does have an effect. It, it, it mostly, to me, operates on the level of culture war. Like, it's, those people don't really care about history. It's not like the new college of Florida, the honors college there, whatever is funding jobs in history or the university of Florida. It's mostly a way to score points in the, in the run up to 2024. It's, it's, it's very minor. That's what I would ultimately say too, which is frustrating to me. And Glenn, please feel free to disagree with me is that all the public commentary about universities has to do with DEI stuff. And I'm like, these fields are dying. You know, in 20 years, there will be no historians, and we're spending all of our energy talking about DEI. To me, that's a that's a real problem. It's missing the forest for the trees, in my opinion. Even if you disagree with DEI, and even if it reflects something about the administrative uh, administratification of the university, I'm skeptical that university leaders really care about diversity, equity, inclusion as a class. Um, but to me, it, it it's not the most important issue facing the, these fields.
0: No, I agree with that. I disagree if I, if, if I disagreed. Uh, but so let me see if I got the story right. So there aren't any jobs. That means people are not going to elect and spend years preparing themselves for a life in this discipline. So the discipline is dying. Why are there not any jobs? Because the university is going to hell in a handbasket, I somehow think. And we've commodified and and, mark you know, made into a market phenomenon, this whole process of uh, this uh, late adolescent educational, whatever whatever we mean by educational experience. And uh, uh, the result is that we have gig uh, professors. Can I just uh, entr- address the
1: supply and demand issue quickly? Yeah. Uh, so people often say, well, there's not jobs for them. The thing is, there's tons of jobs. They're just crappy jobs because the university, university system is a cartel. That's a big problem. It's effectively an unregulated cartel. Um, so I think to make ac- any actual changes, you'll have to have some legislation, whether at the state or federal level. Um, Bernie was uh, um, was approach- uh, was proposing something like this that you, would, in order to receive federal funding, a certain percentage of your faculty would have to be tenure track. Um, I think at this point, barring some massive wave of unionization, which uh, I don't know, Glenn, uh, per university professors who are tenured aren't the most uh, willing to u- unionize, uh, and they're the ones with the most power. Barring something like that, is going to need some sort of legislative solution. Otherwise, it's just going to collapse. I think it'll probably oh. just collapse. Explain the cartel point. I don't understand. How, is it, how are the universities cartels? Because you can't go elsewhere with a history degree. So it's not actually a uh, degree that gets you into other professions. So the university is effectively the sole place that you can be employed for the job that you were trained for. So they function as a cartel with setting, setting prices, You know, setting who's going to be hired and who's not going to be hired and what types of jobs that they're going to hire and what types of jobs that they're not going to hire for.
0: And so for, they've for effectively... A cart- for a cartel, I, I would think you need some kind of coordination. I mean, the, the well, fact this that is they the set question. the price... They compete are, with one another, don't they? are they coordinate i mean okay, so we haven't we have an argument about the political economy of the university
1: yeah, I mean this is I, I, I if if you notice there's a certain class of presidents who move between universities right when when you when you I hire have that. yes, when you hire these people
0: <laughs> they, I have noticed uh, that. so
1: I would say um it does function like a cartel, people might disagree but but uh. I don't know if, if you disagree, I'd like to hear so you why. want
0: the high the percentage with tenure higher I mean I could see an argument for going in the other direction and reducing the number of people who have tenure to zero in the fullness of time because it is isn't it a kind of contractual feature uh that you know uh, it it it's supposed to be guaranteeing independence, but I think that's a pretty thin argument uh so the uh, sun Sin setting why? of, you might I just think it's a pretty why. thin, thin argument, unconvincing argument to me. Why? Could you just explain that, why? That I should give lifetime. I mean, for example, I could have a, a, so what's the risk? The risk is the person has a view that's unpopular and that their position is compromised because of that. And we're, we're trying to assure them Employment in order to give them the freedom to think for themselves and not have retaliation. And that's why I'm granting tenure. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think that's a lot that you, you're locking yourself in to a, a lifetime commitment to something. Circumstances could could well, you know, evolve and, and develop. Uh, and I, and I don't know why I have to use that as the, as the form of compensation. I mean, I could pay them more or, uh, give, get other, uh, kind of benefits into the retirement package or something rather than give them a lifetime guarantee of a job. So uh, I don't know why tenure, I, I understand that it's security, but it's very rare. You don't see it in other uh, trades or professions. I mean, it, it it's. Well, you used to, uh,
1: I mean, uh, under the neoliberal capitalist economy, it got rid of that sort of Fordist vision where people work at, you know, two or three but companies. But why not
0: get rid of it? Why lock yourself in? I mean, what's the, what's the, the principle for that? We, we should negotiate a contract that allocates the responsibilities and, and risk in, in whatever mutually beneficial way we, we arrive at. I mean, I don't see why tenure uh, has to be sacrosanct.
1: I, I, I mean, I'm not married to tenure as such. I just don't think that's going to actually happen in the actually existing capitalist economy of 2023. I think if you got rid of tenure, everyone's working conditions would just get worse. So it's also a historical question and not just a philosophical question. Um, I think that would be the final death blow. But I, I agree, I'd prefer to live in, in a society where people were able to organize and make actual demands on their employers. But absent that. Tenure is what we've got in this particular system for peculiar historical reasons related to how Americans envisioned the purpose of the university. That's It's a historical answer, not like a philosophical one. You could imagine worlds where you don't need tenure, but in this one, (laughs) I'm sticking to my tenure.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, I'm not trying to take it away from you. I'm, I was just thinking <laughs> worry, out loud. Don't
1: someone else will. But also it's interesting. Conservatives always complain that they're, never, that they're not allowed in, in, in universities and that you would think they would be the utmost defenders of tenure so that they could actually express heterodox opinions. Which I do, I mean, I do agree. The academy is not left. The academy, the humanistic academy I know is very liberal. It is center left. That's how I would describe the common ideology of the American university system,
0: Okay so they don't have a sophisticated uh dialectical materialism kind of uh uh analysis of the structures of the reproduction of power and 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 inequality they have a they're playing the culture war thing and the identity thing and they're they're trendy left and they they click check, checking the right boxes i don't mean to put words in your mouth but that's what i hear you saying <laughs> um
1: I would say they're go along to get along, and they're mostly – it's a form of Democratic Party liberalism is how I would define it. Um, so it's always funny to me when people talk about like what Dinesh D'Souza or who, what have you talks about the radical left. Like what – if only there was a radical left at universities. It, it is just not the case. Um, so, so they're basically institutionalists is the point that I'm getting at. So I think most people are like kind of Barack Obama-y in that they believe in the institution. Maybe the wrong people are running it, but the institution itself is good. So I think that's a lot of the reason you don't see more labor organizing or more attacks on the system until now when the Princeton grads aren't even getting jobs. Once the Princeton grads don't get jobs and the the system, the meritocratic ideology that upholds the system is falling apart And and it's happening rapidly. I would say in the last two years, you've really seen like, top, top professors who five years ago would have never lambasted the system really doing it now and in public. Like who? Like David Bell. Like David Bell was talking, uh, he always talks about the problems with the job market and things along those lines. But but there's uh, other professors at at universities like... um, for example, Kevin Cruz, the well-known liberal historian, retweeted my um, tweet. George Carroll Oates, not a professor, but you know, also retweeted my tweet. It's, it, it's funny because it's like once it hits the elite of the elite, now people start paying attention, which I guess makes sense that we do live in a society defined by an ideology of meritocracy. But if even the meritocrats aren't getting jobs and someone finally, finally, uh, finally looks at the
0: system. It's an interesting well, I want you know, I'm doing. I'm doing my part, uh, Daniel. I'm stepping down as professor. <laughs> I've entered into a three-year uh, phase retirement uh, process at Brown University, so I'll be Have getting out done- of the way. Have they
1: done one-to-one replacements in your department or do they three people retire and they hire one? That seems to mostly what happened. Departments are shrinking all over the country. I'm curious what it's like in economics. I think
0: economics is growing at Brown. At least it's not shrinking. I'm pretty sure it's not shrinking. And because enrollments, enrollments are up because there's no business school at Brown.
1: Right, exactly.
0: So people... people... So if, if, if you want to go to New York and work in finance, you have to take economics courses. <laughs>
1: I, it'd be interesting. I bet if a business school was founded, it would be a an X graph. You know, it would go down in economics
0: and it would go up in business. So, th- th- and this is where you know pr- the other thing have economics power. has going forward is it has a kind of engineering dimension to it. As you know, I mean, you know, there's a kind of math, kind of quant dimension to it. Even apart from the finance jobs, I think you'd attract a certain kind of intellectual diversity because of that. You know, people who came into it for the analytical side, the statistical side. And the applications, I think this must matter, mustn't it? As you say, there really isn't a lot for a historian to do outside of the university, outside of teaching history. Whereas, you know, a company of medium size might want to have a kind of analysis of its market uh, prospects and whatnot that would require the consulting services of uh, a firm that uh, an economist uh, with a PhD could get a could get a job at. A central bank, you know, a bank is going to want to have an analytics uh department and so forth
1: for sure and and you actually do see some like entrepreneurial people go into things like user experience from the humanities and 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 anthropology associated social science um what's going to be real fun is when ai replaces all those people and uh what are they (laughs) going (laughs) to do because i think that's actually going to be coming pretty soon within the next 10 15 years you're going to be able to get those sorts of analyses much much more efficiently from a relatively sophisticated uh artificial intelligence so what are all those economics phds going to do
0: Oh, okay. Well, the kind of... uh, You see it in coding.
1: It's already happening in coding. They're replacing people. They're going to replace them the second we can. Well, that has implications for all of us, doesn't it? Oh, oh, yes, it does. <laughs> Most definitely. I mean, and this was the Marxian point, right? In that instance, we're working for the technology, and the technology is not working for us. I think we have to move toward the latter and get rid of the former and make the technology work for us. And le- instead of leaving us poor, le- leaves us time to write poetry. You know, farm in the morning, critique in the afternoon. I think you need
0: a. I think you need a dynamic, uh, multi generational framework for this, though. I, I think. The transition generation, when the new technology comes on board, is displaced and dislocated, and, and that definitely is a problem. On the other hand, after, as the transition is endured and a new phase comes on board, the generations will come along with the benefit of the technology not suffering the dislocation effect, because they will have adapted and developed into different directions will be the beneficiary. So I I think, you know, I agree with you that the cost is there. There's also a benefit from technology, even even artificial intelligence that'll put a lot of clerical you know, busybodies out of work.
1: <laughs> I mean, the, the, it, po- the potential benefit is freeing up our time, the most valuable thing yeah, we have on earth, right? right? I mean, that is the potential benefit. I don't think yeah. that's going to happen under capitalism, right? This is the whole Marxian point. It can't happen under capitalism because of the internal dynamics. But it has happened
0: under capitalism, hasn't it? Now we're going to have another kind of argument. I don't, don't I have a lot more leisure than I would have had 100 years ago? And, you know, I don't know if that comparison makes any sense. It, it 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 seems to me though that it it, it is true that we are abundant with uh, respect to the ability to reflect and uh so on uh so i mean that, I, I, I capitalism warts and all is partly responsible for that uh, yeah,
1: and then we get, this is really a larger social question, is how come every member of the bourgeoisie is on four types of antidepressants? How come Americans are, are eating worse food? How come they're spending more time zonked out in front of the television? Um, I, I, I mean, these are th- those are all small C conservative points in a way, but I, I would say we live in a pretty alienated moment, actually, of disconnection. And the question is, how do you explain that alienation? I mean, Glenn, I would, I would bet 90% of your students at Brown are on some form of sertraline, or SSRI or something along those lines, which to me would indicate a what, larger social problem. What is that? Problem. I'm sorry, I don't know what it uh, is. Like, a, like, a, like an antidepressant, broadly speaking. An antidepressant. 90%? You think I would, so? I would guess something like that, yes. Or have been on it at some point in their life. Now, I'm not, I don't have data, but this is my guess. This is my guess, is that everyone that I have met anecdotally in my life has been on some form of antidepressant at some point, and this is regardless of a um, place in the in the in the class distribution. Um, I mean, there's there are there is data that in terms of what Americans eat is getting worse. You know, we have microplastics in our body or whatever. That's very depressing. All that, is, that is, yeah, really it's super terrible. depressing. It's it's super depressing because we we have the technology. This was the Marxian point: capitalism would produce the technology, and then the question is, you have to take you have to use it. And not allow it to use you, and I think we're I think we're in the latter right now. That's the way I see things,
0: at least. Okay, so what is to be done? Unionization? Well, I'm pretty that, pessimistic. That seems a pipe dream, doesn't it? The, the people with the power, like me, are unwilling to you know to go along with the show. So you're pessimistic. Yeah,
1: I mean to be honest, so. I'm a historian. I think the war was lost in 1914. <laughs> I think once the working classes of Europe fought each other for nationalism, that was it. After that, the state got effectively too complicated for people to actually seize it and control it. Where the communist revolution happened, were in these basically peasant societies that were had to do these like forced industrialization five year plans. So I think basically, if if you view the nineteenth century as like the industrial revolution century, and it le- gives rise to these great ideologies, which is how are we going to deal with this? You know. So
0: you think the Bolshevik rev- revolution that that, uh, that Lenin and company were. Were the harbinger perhaps of something great, but that it somehow got frustrated? Did, no, I the... think it would have
1: had had to have happened in Germany. Uh, I don't think, from the perspective of 2023, I, I don't think it could have happened in the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union was at a much lower stage of development, and so you had to do these so, things somewhere and it are going to work. But if it's 1914 and the German working class seizes the means of production and says we're not going to fight a genocidal war with uh, France and Britain, then things could have gone differently. Uh, also nationalism was not as developed, you know, the Eugen Weber book from peasants into Frenchmen, which argues that. Oh, so it's this very famous book, which argues that like, it's really only in the early 20th century when people have a real sense of national identity. Once nationalism defeated class identity in the early 20th century, I think it would have been very difficult to have us control technology and not have technology. This is a very
0: Eurocentric Uh, conception, isn't it? What's happening in South Asia and East Asia uh, at at this time? Or are they a colonial appendage to the European story?
1: No, they're, they're not an appendage. But I would just say the center of global capitalism was in Europe, not as a value judgment, just as a factual judgment. It relied on colonial exploitation. Absolutely. Colonialism, racism, capitalism, they all go together. But as a space where there were these means of capitalist production that one could actually seize at the time, just as a historical fact, it was mostly in Europe.
0: You use this capitalist framing, but I mean, compared to what? I mean, th- there were transactions and interactions of various sorts that played out. Uh, the distribution of entitlement and property was under the regime that it was under. I mean, I, you know, you say capitalist almost with a sneer. And I, and I want to know, compared to what? I mean, do you envision that there was really as a practical matter uh, an, an alternative history uh, and that the capitalists have steered us onto this awful path, I, I'm not sure. The the, the question is how, is- how do we evaluate, I'm not sure, how do we evaluate your repudiation of capitalism as a causal factor in world history?
1: Right, and, and this this in, involves engaging in alternate history. And so I actually have an alternate history podcast <laughs> with my friend, Matt Chrisman, uh that that goes into de- uh, the details of this, particularly the World War One case, the 1914 and the 1918-1919 case of like, what could have maybe happened but but yeah i think it inv- i think you're precisely right and it, it involves imagining a different world that didn't come to be and when you're making counterfactual claims you're totally right the the claim could be like it was overdetermined it happened this way therefore it had to happen this way which m- that might very well be true uh it, it that is what happened so it's hard to
0: say it, no um but then that this is you got is the- me you got me sorry i'm sorry because you got me fighting above my weight here in the Land of theoret- historical theo- theoretical, historical, uh, theoretical, whatever philosophy. I'm, I'm not. <laughs> no, but, it's, but I want to. I I yeah, yeah, identifying
1: ahead. identifying causal factors is absolutely uh, essential to to any form of historical reasoning. And I think you raise a, a, an, an objection, which is that it was overdetermined, that this was what was going to happen. And it's hard for me to say no because it's what happened. That's all I'm saying. How could I say it wasn't was supposed to happen because it did? <laughs>
0: Okay, I want to talk about the Harper's piece. Sure. Uh, This was uh, the end of the American century. Henry Luce, you you start out with Henry Luce's vision uh, for an America-led domination of global affairs, and you you say the the jig is up, and uh, like it or not, we better get used to it. Uh, (laughs) Talk about that.
1: Right. So what's happening it sort of put on my other cap as a uh, foreign policy guy on is that the United States has been ruling the world since at least the early 1990s. Uh, one could even say that since World War II, you could tell the whole history of the Cold War as being about nothing more than the U.S. rise to primacy. Obviously, it is about something more, but you could make put that narrative frame on it. Um, so basically, every American that you know has only lived in the world in which the United States was effectively, um, not the undisputed, but was hegemonic. I would say, in retrospect, we could see that the Soviet Union barring its nuclear weapons, which is a different question, was never really an economic threat to the United States or U.S. global hegemony. The U.S. probably won that battle by like 1965, which is what a lot of historians have claimed. So we've only lived in a world of U.S. dominance. Um, But the problem is, is that that world is rapidly going away just in terms of, you know, things like share of GDP um, and uh, U.S. power vis-a-vis China. So the United States... I think one of the reasons that that people are so confused right now is that the fundamental thing about what it means to be an American is changing. So is the United States going to be able to dominate East Asia forever? Should the United States fund European defense until the cows come home? Should the United States spend $800 billion on its military instead of on social welfare programs and things of that nature? So I think these are to live- To the
0: answers are no, no, and no, right? <laughs> well, I mean- de-
1: Depends who you ask. I've- um I yeah. mean the, the thing is most Americans say no no and no but most of the foreign policy establishment says yes yes and don't care. Um so I think this is this is one of the interesting things and I mean this is why I think that um when people say things like the United States isn't a, a democracy they're not usually referring to voting they're, they're they're referring to how the state is literally made up and I think the post World War II American state basically insulated foreign policy and macroeconomic decision-making from public opinion and from Congress in a lot of instances. So what you have is a moment of transition, but an entire leadership class that effectively wants to act like nothing has changed, that we should fight World War III over Taiwan, for instance, That, that this is something that is in the American interest, that the United States should send arms to Ukraine because you want to defend international norms against trans-border aggression. Um, but I think that we actually don't talk about these much larger structural shifts, these generally apocal structural shifts about what the United States did actually do in the world. And so I count myself a, a, a so-called restrainer, a, a left-wing restrainer, and I would say, basically in DC, basically in both political parties, there's a form of liberal internationalism that governs the United States' approach to the world. So I think we're cruising for a bruising because I think in 10 years, five years, two years, when China, you know, tries to attack Taiwan, is the US just going to automatically defend Taiwan? Is that in the United States' interest? This is something that should be subject to democratic discussion at the very least and is absolutely not by any stretch of the imagination.
0: Well wow. <laughs> no, I am I'm, I'm trying to think so the conventional response of course we have to defend Taiwan the United States uh, uh reputation for uh maintaining maintaining its uh commitments to its allies would require that and a and a failure to respond to Chinese aggression against t- Taiwan would be a kind of capitulation and a a kind of uh, de facto acknowledgement of the diminution of American uh, influence in the world. And should we care about that? Uh, I am not an international affairs expert, but I imagine the argument would be that down the road, there would be the need to uh, assure uh, people that the US would do this or do that and without the ability to credibly commit itself in that way uh deleterious consequences would ensue i i mean i i, I don't know i don't know why as an american i should care about the influence of the united <laughs> states of america in world affairs but i, I somehow sense that there's got to be another there, there's got to be another side to that and Taiwan is a really extreme case, is it not? I mean, that's the- Well, it's the most likely one. That, <laughs> extreme in its be...
1: consequences, but most likely in its in its possibility. I mean, mainland China has made repeatedly clear that it wants Taiwan. So I would say that even if I disagree with that position, um, that position might've made sense in 1993 or 1985. But I'm saying that doesn't even acknowledge the world that we- US can't do it. Just like China couldn't conquer Cuba- the U.S. isn't really going to be able to defend Taiwan. So I, the problem is that we're having this fantasy discussion about U.S. reliability, about a world that doesn't exist. I Again, in the article, there's the exact numbers. But U.S. GDP and GDP held by the G7 has just been down. Down, 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 and it's just going to continue to go down. Right? It's not going to be World War II, 1945, when the U.S. is responsible for half of world exports. It's not going to be 1991, where it's the sole unipolar uh, uh, polar power. But the problem is, someone like Joe Biden, who's what 80 years old, only understands that world, and thus only hires people who understands that world. So you have an entire approach to foreign policy that is literally atavistic. It's like talking about you know the aristocracy in 1965 as a major problem. It's just not the world that exists anymore. So we have this totally disconnected from any objective reality discussion about U.S. foreign policy, which I really do think is going to lead to disaster, which which could literally lead to massive wars and massive deaths
0: around the world. Could. Well, you're, you're in a good position in the event, the awful horrible event that war should break out between the U.S. and China to be able to say, I told you so. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, but uh, <laughs> I won't be in a good position in Seattle though. <laughs> That's on the West Coast. That, that could as I mean, will take. Uh and so like <laughs> and, and, and another problem is like Americans are so far from a nuclear explosion that they don't take it seriously. And they don't quite realize what what that like really means. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, and and I think like particularly when it comes to things like arming Ukraine, it is a low probable event. <laughs> but it's so catastrophic that people really do need to take it more seriously than th- that they than they ever have in my opinion
0: I have to ask you what is your uh position I'm sure you must have one on the U.S and the NATO um support for the Ukrainians and the conflict with Russia oh uh, I have opinion uh
1: I I think that there's no major U.S interest in Ukraine I think much more relevant to American concerns is the continuing existence of the military industrial complex. And I think that sending weapons to Ukraine and giving them a blank check has, I'm sure you've seen the numbers, has been great for for Lockheed and Boeing and everyone like that. And it's just been another steroidal shot in the arm of this complex, which I think distorts American society in in manifold ways by, by diverting resources. But even more than that, we live in like a militaristic society, which again, I just don't think is good for the human Soul, especially because we're very safe. Like, why are we surrounded with militaristic imagery, militaristic language, flyers at football games, things like that? And that's more of a metaphysical point. But I think we should we should try to live in a peacetime society as opposed to the permanently mobilized one we've been living in with an eight hundred billion dollar military budget since nineteen forty five.
0: Okay, everybody, he was prepared with a response to my question. <laughs>
1: and, and, and and with NATO, NATO, Europe's rich. They should pay for their own damn defense. Uh, and as a philosophical problem, I think that people within regions are ultimately better able to determine their interests than people who don't live in regions. That's like a philosophical point. That's a point almost about sovereignty. That Europe, if Europe wants to send weapons permanently to Ukraine— That's, in some sense, maybe if I don't agree with it for whatever reason, that's Europe's decision.
0: Shouldn't be the United States' decision. You you don't have any concern about Putin run amok uh, and about having to send him the right uh, message and to, you
1: know, enforce
0: the norms of international, you know.
1: Uh, enforcing and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean the US loves enforcing those norms against everyone but itself. But forget the hypocrisy. I don't think Putin I think if anything, the war has demonstrated that Putin can't go like go into Poland, which is what people were saying at the beginning of the war. Like I, I don't think that
0: that's literally possible. Oh uh, okay. <laughs> I laugh because I want to disagree with you, actually, but I don't think I do. <laughs> Thank you. I know that I'm supposed to. I know. I know that I. Well, how do you explain the near unanimity of uh, manufactured consensus opinion uh, around this issue, particularly with the nuclear war risk? I mean, uh, John Mearsheimer, I know, has been saying some stuff that I thought was pretty sensible. Uh, but but um not not many people at all are so sounding a concern. I actually have a real answer for
1: this. So I'm co-editing a volume on Cold War liberalism. Um and I think liberalism as a governing ideology um and like capital L liberalism 19th century liberalism. So in the US small L liberals and conservatives are both species of 19th century liberalism. Um, but I think for the first time in 70 years, liberalism is, is itself in crisis. You know, the promises of the utopian 1990s just haven't come true. Things are more unequal. People are more atomized. People generally aren't happy. Eastern Europe, the site of democracy's efflorescence, uh, efflorescence has now gone authoritarian in regard. Uh, Trump won. Most importantly, Trump won. And his loudishness demonstrated to liberals that um, he, people aren't abiding by their norms of exchange. So liberalism is in crisis. And so I think what, what, what people are doing is they're searching for ways unconsciously to reinvigorate an ideology that is basically governed uncontested since 1945. You see it with fascism talk, right? I have a piece coming out in the new Republic on the rise. Everyone's a fascist, right? Um, And I go into the specific reasons why, but I think that's a a symptom of liberals not feeling confident in themselves, right? Think about 1995 and the Oklahoma City bombing. No one called Timothy McVeigh a fascist. If that happened today, he would be a fascist because I think liberals need an other in order to justify themselves. And so with the Ukraine war, they're having this great old other, the Russian. They, They were taught for 50 years to hate the Russian. So it's just like putting on an old shoe that it's comfortable and it fits well. And it feels like you're righteous and it feels like you're fighting on the good side when liberals really don't have that much to brag about with things like climate change and inequality and continued racism and all these things and i think that really explains it it's a psychic way and also none of their kids are going to die you know it might be different if they were sending their kids to die in kiev or wherever and on, on the ukrainian front so you're able to basically strike a posture of moral superiority and power without sacrificing anything, which is basically the definition of liberalism since 1945. And I think that's a hard moment. Why I think Frank Fukuyama is right is that there's no ideology to challenge this. Like, it's not like there's been another, you know, efflorescence, sorry to use that word again, of a great ideology to challenge liberalism, we're all just sort of shuffling along and feeling weird. So you have basically an ideology that is pretty much been shown. And on some level, I think everyone recognizes isn't quite working, even if you believe in it, even if you think it, you know is sort of Panglossian, the best of all possible worlds, this is the one we got. Um, but they're not like really convinced by that. And so that's why I think explains the fervor around Ukraine, the anger at someone like Mersheimer, and again, this sort of fascism talk.
0: That's about full, and and I hear you, Daniel. Daniel, very thoughtful. Daniel Bessner, he's an associate professor with tenure, I have to assume, at the uh, University of Washington's uh, School of International Studies. I got to go because I have office hours uh, scheduled for right now. So I need to sign off. Ask your students why they went to college. I'm curious. Ask each one no, of them. <laughs> I, well, and I have this first year seminar. So they are in their first year. So I, I think on Thursday, we meet on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I think I will ask them. that. I think I'll start the class by asking them that. I'm curious. And ask them if they know what an adjunct is. I bet you they don't. Ha!
1: <laughs> okay. Good.
0: Thanks a lot, Daniel.